Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And as you're turning that parable up, let's pray for a moment together. This we know with all our hearts. His wounds have paid our ransom. And how eternally grateful we are that Jesus has died in our place so that we might know you as our father and friend. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we pray tonight that as we come close to the very heart of the Christian faith, that you would speak to us all, that you would challenge those of us who know and love Jesus, but that you'd also speak to those who haven't yet trusted him, that they might trust in him for the very first time tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're picking up where we left off this morning. We rarely do this. We normally think about different parts of the Bible in the morning and in the evening. It has been quite helpful for me this week to prepare and think about the whole chapter rather than leaving a week's gap before coming back to it. Uh, This morning we looked at two of the parables in Luke 15, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, They're familiar stories and the third parable, the one that we're about to look at now, is in the same category. Uh, We will only get halfway through it though, we'll finish it next Sunday morning. But the parable of the prodigal son is probably, probably Jesus' most well-known parable, well-known story. I I would say that it's a close race between the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, This is one of those parables that has a wider influence on our world and culture. Uh, The paradigm or concept of the prodigal son has been reused over and over again. I typed prodigal son into Google this week and what appeared were headlines of news articles using the phrase, a rugby coach, a footballer, a CEO, a motorbike racer, and a member of the royal family. Guess which one? Member of the royal family were all compared or given the title, the prodigal son. Our world and culture is familiar with the concept or outline of the story found in Luke 15. A son leaves his father, a footballer leaves the team he he started out with, a member of of the royal family is estranged from other royals, and after a fairly miserable experience at another football club or in another part of the world, they return home. The problem is that that there's a little bit more to the parable of the prodigal son than that. It's a brilliant example of storytelling, though. Jesus was the greatest storyteller to have ever walked the earth. One person has said that this parable is the greatest short story in the world. Someone else has said that it's the the greatest five minutes of storytelling ever. There's drama, there's detail, there's emotion, there's character development, there are surprises. But most importantly of all, there's grace. The parable of the prodigal son is a parable about the grace of God to lost sinners. This third parable completes the trilogy of parables of grace in Luke 15. I'm still reading Lord of the Rings, You're Despairing, but I'm still reading it. It's a trilogy, so there are three books, and I'm nearly finished the third book. It's been a bit of a slog, to be honest. The third book has been a tough old read, but we can't say that about, uh, say that about any part of this trilogy of parables. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin tell us about the grace of God from a divine viewpoint. The, the, the third parable gives us a picture of what it looks like in human experience. 
Uh, the name of the parable is actually quite misleading in some ways. Uh, you'll see that if you look at how it begins. It begins, and he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. The title our English Bible gives this parable is perhaps unhelpful. The title, which is uninspired, meaning that it wasn't part of the original text. So when you see those titles in the Bible, you've got to remember it's not part of the original. They're not inspired. The, the title, the uninspired title, focuses on the younger son. But it's a parable about two sons. There's an older son and his lostness is just as serious as the younger son's. And we'll see that next week. But before we look at this parable, let's just remind ourselves of the context. We covered this this morning. Jesus is speaking to tax collectors and sinners and also Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees and scribes aren't happy that he's associating with tax collectors and sinners. And so in response, Jesus tells three parables. Through the first two parables, Jesus explains salvation from heaven's perspective, but he's doing something else. He's explaining his ministry. The Pharisees and scribes don't understand why he's mixing and mingling with societal outcasts, so he tells these parables to explain his divine mission. Jesus, Jesus is the heavenly search party. He's turning on lights, sweeping down the corridors of people's lives. He has come to reunite God and man through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. With all that said, let's look at this third parable in Luke 15. It's much longer than the first two, but it, it addresses the same context, the same situation, and the same people, and it also teaches the same thing as well, namely that God loves to find and save lost sinners. Tonight we're going to keep our outline as simple as possible, and we're going to highlight two of the main characters in the parable. We're going to look at the younger son and the eager father, and next week we'll look at the eager father and the older brother. It'll be really helpful for you to keep in your mind that the younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. The older brother, by the way, represents the Pharisees and the scribes. Both are types of sinners, but we're also told about an eager father who loves to save the lost. Let's start with the younger son and let's read the beginning of his story as Jesus tells it in verses 11 to 13. So this is the younger son. There was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. In terms of age, the younger son was probably about 17. He asks, asks his father for his share of the inheritance. In Jesus' day, the older son normally got two-thirds of his father's estate the younger son would have received the rest. Uh, the request from the younger son is out of the ordinary though, because it's not related to the amount that he asks for. It's out of the ordinary because he asks for it before his father has died. In essence, the younger son wants to break all ties and associations with his family. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, can be understood as him effectively saying, Father, I wish you were dead. He's planning to leave and he's not anticipating that he's going to keep in touch. He wants to skip to the point where he can have his father's money without having his father. Je Jesus doesn't give us any indication as to why the young man feels the way he does. There's no particular benefit in speculating what might have caused the request. We're not sociologists or behavioural an analysts. 
we should simply see that it causes an irreparable breach in the relationship between the father and the son. And he, the father, divided his property between them. The relationship is broken. The younger son's mind can't be changed. So the father gives him what he wants. The young man presumably skips down the driveway once he gets what he wants. Not many days later, the the, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. Gathering all that he has suggests again that he's not coming back. This This is a permanent break. He leaves home in the anticipation of good times ahead, unbridled fun and pleasure. He's got cash, so he'll have friends, he'll have food, drink and women as well. His fun doesn't last long though. Jesus puts it quite delicately by telling us, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The young man's reckless and wild lifestyle eventually drains his resources. When a severe famine hits the region, verse 14, he finds himself without any money, friends or prospects. In the end, his only option is to take a job feeding pigs, verse 15, in order to survive. Let's let's storyboard this part of his life. What's the arc of the story like in his mind? Well, it starts here at home. He's got stable influences around him. He's presumably living in reasonable comfort and prosperity. And he's been given every available opportunity to, to, to flourish and to succeed in life. He makes a decision to leave home with his, with his early and untimely inheritance, inheritance money. He has access to cash that he has never had before. He has popularity and a wide-ranging friendship group. And he can live in whatever way he wants because he's far from home and no one is judging him. He's living the dream. In his mind, this is the, the pinnacle, the apex, the high point of his life, his story. But when his money runs out and when the famine comes it all comes crashing down. He's in a worse position than the one he started in. So his story starts here, stable family influences. He's got all the money in the world and then it all comes crashing down. He loses his money, verse 14. He loses his freedom in that he hires himself out in verse 15. And he loses his self-respect because he's feeding pigs in verse 16. Loses his money, loses his freedom, loses his self-respect. Jews didn't touch pigs, never mind feed them. The young man loses his cultural and religious identity by what he does. All in all, he's in a pretty desperate position. His desperation brings clarity though. Look at what we're told in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? At the bottom, the young man looks up. The language is so vivid. He came to himself. He comes to his senses. Now, this is the, this is the human experience of salvation. The first parables tell us about the divine view from heaven. God seeks and searches and takes the initiative. But this is how we experience his seeking and searching. Lots of us will be able to look back at a time when God in his kindness made us see the depths and misery of our sin, of how it spoils our lives, of how it ruins our relationships, of how we can't escape it by ourselves. Well, we can look back to that time, remember how God showed us the extent of our sin so that we finally called out for him to help. 
I, I've known people to have experiences like that. In another church I served in, uh, there was a lady who started coming to church on account of her husband becoming a Christian. He was going to church and she felt guilty because he was going and she wasn't. She started coming, started hearing the gospel, started sensing that God was speaking to her, came to a Christianity Explored course, had everything explained to her. Before the end of the Christianity Explored course, she became a Christian in her car on the school run. She just broke down in tears one day and trusted in the Lord Jesus. God worked in such a way that on that day, on the school run, she came to herself. Or take the story of Chuck Colson. He served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1970. He was known as the hatchet man in the Nixon administration, but was implicated in the Watergate scandal. In the end, he served seven months in prison because of Watergate. But in the chaos of the Watergate scandal, a friend gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Colson read the chapter on pride and it nailed him to the wall. He leaves his friend's house, sits in his car in his friend's driveway, turns the key in the ignition, puts it in gear, but he can't move. The reason he can't move is because the tears are running down his face. And all he could say was, Lord Jesus Christ, I am a mess. Save me. He came to himself. God searches and and sweeps down the corridors of our lives until one day his, his searching brings us to our senses. Until one day his searching brings us to see the futility of our sin. And this is what each one of us needs to see. Sin sin is enticing, sin is seductive, but sin has consequences. It promises what it cannot deliver. It promises freedom and fun, but it delivers bondage and pain. The the, the younger son illustrates what what, what the repentance mentioned in the previous two parables looks like. It involves a turning from sin, a coming to your senses. Now, we need to think of this parable in a pastoral way too. Sometimes it takes God to bring people down into the pigsty before they turn to him. Not a literal pigsty, but a a pigsty of experience. And for some of us, that will be really hard to watch because the people we're watching, whether it's children or grandchildren or siblings, brothers and sisters, will be in full flight from God, full-scale rebellion from him. And they'll make some really bad decisions. They'll make some decisions that we just don't agree with, just can't agree with. What do we do? How how do we respond? Well, you pray, obviously, as we've prayed tonight, regularly, faithfully, consistently. But you also do your own sweeping and and turning on of the lights. That's what God does, so... It's what we're called to do. Invite them to church every now and again. Encourage them to come to an event or an organization. But most of all, pray that they'll come to themselves. Even though at times it may break your heart, pray that they'll come to their senses. That's the younger son. We've said enough about him. He comes to his senses. God breaks into his life so that he can see the depths of his sin He hatches a plan, which is a mixture of audacity and humility. He'll approach his father, admit his guilt, and beg for some kind of restoration. He knows that he can't be a son again, but he might be treated as a servant. In terms of the arc of his story, 
He'll not be where he was here, where he started, but he'll be, a, he'll be in a better position than where he is at the moment, which is the pigsty. In verse 20, having come to his senses, he returns home. And now our attention moves to the eager father, the younger son, the eager father. Let's read verses 20 and 21. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, he, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you because I am, no, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's reasonable to assume that the younger son's heart was pounding as he, as he neared the family estate. He was probably running over in his mind what he was going to say. He probably practiced it a thousand times. Well, what happens as he returns home is a surprise. His father sees him a long way off. Was he watching out for him? We're not told. His father felt compassion for his son and receives him with joy. The father runs to meet his son and throws his arms around him and kisses him. Such a poignant, precious picture. We can so easily imagine it in our minds. We can so easily imagine watching something similar on TV or in a movie you, you just couldn't write a better script than this. The, the son blurts out his humble request for restoration in verse 21, but he's only getting started before his father interrupts. Look at verses 22 to 24. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's a huge surprise. If you know this story, and I think that most of you do, it can be hard to appreciate how unexpected this response is. The younger son's behavior was a scandal. You can imagine the gossip and chat that it would have sparked. Did you hear about him? He's gone wild. He's gone off the rails. No one would have blamed the father if he had responded to his son's return with suspicion and distance. But no one would have expected him to respond with lavish and unrestrained love. Just look at again, just look at again what the father does. He gives him a robe, a ring, and some sandals. The robe is an indication of status. The ring is a symbol of authority. And the sandals are a sign that he isn't a slave anymore. And as well as that, he, he orders that the calf is killed. The killing of a calf was, was an extreme extravagance, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime celebration. The son who was dead has been restored to life. The son who was lost has been found. Just as there's joy in heaven when a sinner repents, so in this story, there's joy on earth as well. Now, the eager father in this story teaches us about the love of God. What we're supposed to see is that God isn't merely willing to forgive us, He's not reluctant to forgive us. He doesn't begrudge forgiving us. He's eager to forgive us. Th th think of how you would react if you were the father or parent in a situation like this. Your child goes off, lives a wild and reckless life, and eventually comes back one day with their tail between their legs. How would you respond? Answer the question honestly in your mind. You wouldn't respond as the father does in this story, certainly not to the same extent. Most of us would respond in this way. There's a knock at the door, a knock that you're not expecting, 
Your son, your daughter has come back. They left in a blaze of fury. There was an awful argument. They vowed never to come back, but here they are. Oh, you're back. Don't you realize the pain and heartache you've caused? Your mum has been worried sick. We have been humiliated because of what you've done. I don't know about you, but it's pretty convicting to imagine how we would respond to a situation like this. It might not be as extreme as we've imagined it, but you wouldn't respond as the father does in the story, certainly not to the same extent. The, the, the thing is, the way the father responds with, with lavish love and compassion is the way God treats sinners. It's amazing. When a sinner comes to their senses, when a sinner turns to God in repentance, when a sinner comes to God, how does he respond? By robing us in the righteousness of Christ by treating us with mercy and compassion and patience and grace. When we turn to him in repentance, he doesn't withhold his grace. He pours it into our lives. And just when we think we've gone just that little bit too far, just when we think we've reached the point of no return, he gives more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, what if you're here tonight? And your story is encapsulated, summarized, retold through the story of the younger son. You've been brought up in church. You've been through all the organizations. You've turned your back on it all, walked away, never trusted Christ in any real sense. But here you are tonight in Bukna or watching online. There've maybe been things happening in your life, circumstances that have brought you to the point of desperation you're in a pigsty, not literally, but that's what it feels like. And it's a pigsty of your own making. You're here in church tonight, you're watching online, and you're thinking, this is my last rule of the dice. Well, what is Jesus teaching through this parable? It's, he's teaching us that, that all of us, like this young man, have turned our backs on God in hundreds of ways, and we have told him to get lost. It's hard to admit, but it's true. Although our relationship with him is ruined, the good news is that it can be set right when we come to our senses. God uses things to bring us to our senses. Death, illness, the birth of a child, the loss of something, whatever it is. He shows us our need of him. And if we turn from our rebellion and our foolishness, if we come to our senses and repent of our sin, He'll throw his arms around us. Where, where are you tonight in spiritual terms? Where do you stand before God? Have you been in a far country? Have you been in rebellion against God? Are you wondering what God thinks of you? Are you wondering how God might respond to you if you were to come back to him? No matter how low you may have sunk, God is an eager father. He requires repentance, but he's anxious, ready, and eager to forgive and restore you to his family. Come home, he says. Come home. Leave all that you've been living for behind and come home. It says, we're going to sing in a moment. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the joy of your salvation. The younger son 
The Eager Father, the greatest short story in the world. The, the, greatest, the greatest five minutes of storytelling ever. And the thing is, we're only halfway through. We'll finish it next Sunday morning. But until then, know this. God loves to find and save lost sinners. Maybe he's sweeping down the corridor of your life today. Maybe he's finally brought you to the point where you can do nothing else but trust in him. Turn to him tonight. Repent of your sin and experience his overflowing, ever-abundant, lavish, eager grace. Let's pray together. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation, even to prodigals, has called our hearts to enter in the joy of your salvation. Father, we thank you for your grace to us through Jesus. We thank you that through him, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you that when we turn and come to our senses, repent and believe in him, we're robed in his righteousness. And we thank you that you're an eager father, that you long for us to come home. Thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in the Savior, that they might experience your grace tonight for the first time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions about the gospel or about anything that we've talked about tonight, please feel as though you can speak to me after the service. If you'd rather not do that, you can give me a ring. I can call up and speak to you at home. But don't delay if God is speaking to you tonight.